Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Also, I figured out how to find the live link. You just click on Polycast Recordings Live on the polycast.net. I don't know how that still works because I don't think that link is still active the right the same way, but apparently it does. It must be the correct link. All right, so we're up. All right. Uh, hello, Internet, and welcome to episode 406 of the Polycast. I am one of your regular co-hosts, <clears throat> Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. Lots of video uploading and trying to figure out how to make YouTube do the right thing makes a uh, Polycaster go crazy. And our other co-host, who is hopefully not going crazy in the shining sort of way, the me and team. Another day, another city. And I'll have you know that I was never seen in the first place. Therefore, I am not going crazy. I'm sorry. I meant to say the shinin. You know, we don't want to get sued. Oh, right. Although, we'll fine. although if we want to talk about crazy, I don't think you can actually pinpoint a time I went crazy. I think I've always been crazy. Hey, you're stealing my line. Now. We are all on the continuum of crazy. Somewhere. True. I'm on like five continuums. I'm tired. I just want a... I mean, you could probably plot my position on a five-dimensional chart, but what 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 use would that be? We couldn't visualize it anyway. You heard it here, listeners. Canis is literally string theory. Um, that's 11 dimensions, but... Anyway, we will well, talk you, about... We can only plot up to five, though. Oh, we can? I thought we could go up to 11. No, we can't. <laughs> Maybe someone can. Not us. Oh, right. I see. <laughs> I see what you're getting at now. Okay. Chalalalala. This week, I want to say, what what was the date? August 1st, Siv uh, Meyer's Civilization, at Civ Game, the Twitter feed for the Civilization games, posted a graphic which stated that 84,721 rockets were launched to March in July. And uh, the immediate response from everyone in the comments and everyone on the forum was, Beyond Earth 2? Beyond Earth 2? Is this a secret drop? And, um... Well, the, the little tiny <laughs> bit of extra context is that the description, or the actual text of the tweet said, we love seeing so many of you go beyond Earth, uh, with beyond in lower, with a lowercase b, so... Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's more of a reference than a drop that they are planning Beyond Earth 2, though. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a callback, not a tease. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember Beyond Earth being set in Mars either. Well, it's because um, in Vanilla Civ 6, the victory condition for the science want victory was getting to Mars instead of Alpha Centauri. Yeah. And then they changed that in, I want to say, Gathering Storm. Correct. But then again, you know, just to be pedantic, Beyond Earth also does not take place on Alpha Centauri because, uh, you know, copyright. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, the in... Civ five and all previous <coughs> civs, it's oh, you're always going to Alpha Centauri. Yeah, no, I know. And uh, 
I will give my opinion. I wish that we could have a Beyond Earth 2. I think it's a little bit late in the cycle for them to announce a new game, though, unless they're expecting it to come out sometime next summer. Yeah, I think uh, for like Civ 6, the announcement was sometime in like March or something like that, and the game released in October. Uh, for the most part, they will expect they will announce a game. Uh, at least Firaxis in the history has released game released announcements six ish months before the game comes out, and uh, usually the game comes out in either like two months from now, like in October, or it'll come out. In like, when did Civ 6 come out? I remember Civ 6 was the oddball. No, I think Civ 6 was in uh, October because I remember it was around my uh, birthday, which is in October. Okay. So maybe it was the expansion packs. Like, I know the expansion packs came out at a different yeah, time. The, the expansion packs, I think, were released in like the spring, like April-ish or something like that. All I remember is we heard about Gathering Storm and it was coming out three months later. And I was like, what, what, what? That's very fast. Yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround. Not that that's a problem, but but I, it just brings up what would we we would assume that they would build Beyond Earth two in the Civ six engine because that's what they did with Civ five and Beyond Earth one. What would that look like? Because what what districts would a city in Beyond Earth have? I'm sure you could make things up if you needed to. Well, I mean, for one thing, you'd ha probably have a lot of just the similar archetypes. You'd want your science district. You'd want your, you know, trade and commercial district. You'd want your industrial district, uh, a cultural district. And then, you know, you'd probably have some sci-fi districts as well. I know, can imagine with it. I could imagine the world project things like the the Exodus Gate stuff. And is that what it's called? I think the Exodus Gate Something might like be that, from yeah. a, I think the Exodus Gate might be from a different franchise, but. There's like the Purity Gate and the Supremacy Gate and the Mind Flower. I think those could presume could be presumably considered to be district project type things like the spaceport. Oh yeah. They sure. have to defend, yeah. Especially you know, considering they could have is a compliance district. Oh uh, no. Or we could also call it the District of Truth. And oh, that's no. where the nerve staples are. We don't need nerve staples. We want it's the not game a matter of need. We want the game to be PG, not PG thirteen. I could see maybe. I could see there maybe being like they could, you know, if they were to maintain like the miasma mechanic, you could potentially see maybe a district that like removes miasma within a range instead of or it utilizes some, it or, or utilizes yeah. it, yeah, in some way, you know, provides yield for it or and protects uh, units that travel through it, as opposed to it being something that you remove with uh, workers or whatever, especially if they continue to use the builder paradigm instead of workers because there's a lot of miasma on the map and oh my gosh could you imagine having to build enough builders to clear all of that miasma i uh don't remember you just clearing. make another unit for it too i don't remember removing miasma at, with workers i remember using uh miasma clearing and satellite stuff oh maybe that was the way it worked I, I i could be misremembering it has been years now since i played beyond earth so i actually reinstalled it a couple days ago and uh, have been meaning to play it, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Beyond Earth was a game that I really liked. I just wish that it wasn't a one-off. Like, I wish that the things that we learned from Beyond Earth were utilized in Civ Six, Like the, uh, the diplomacy system, for instance. The war score system was pretty neat, too. Yeah, that was oh, yeah, one of the... I remember. Diplomacy I remember was one of the strengths for Beyond Earth, which is a, a rare thing in any 
Civ game for diplomacy to be one of the stronger aspects. It was just kind of too bad that so many of the AIs in that game were just kind of passive pushovers. Well, they're kind of that way in regular Civ too, or in uh, um, Civ Five, I mean, because yeah. they uh, at the end of like they said when, before Gathering Storm came out that the Gods and Kings AI, which was the one that was really aggressive toward the player and actually made you worry about getting attacked a lot, they said that that was more aggressive than they wanted it to be. And then in it, I remember in uh, Beyond Earth, and it's still this way, or not Beyond Earth. Um, Brave New World. Brave New World, yeah. Getting my sibs mixed up. Uh, I remember it being almost like the AIs, AIs aren't even here. What, what are they doing? That Why aren't they bothering to stop me? Part of that was a, a mechanical thing, too, because there were so many mechanics in Brave New World that encouraged, you know, peaceful cooperation and, and trading, like all the trade route stuff, which provided reciprocal benefits to both, you know, trade partners meant that once you started trading with someone, it's like, oh, well, we're getting yield from this trade route. So, like, let's not ruin a good thing. Yeah. Um, my issue with that idea was, is the the ever constant, well, the train just left the station and I wasn't on it. Darn it. Uh, anyway, yeah. That also can... still had the problems of disincentivizing uh, successful conquest on top of that. So it had to like, make the AI properly evaluate when the penalties it would take would be not made it the juice not worth the squeeze. It's uh, not a good environment generally, but certainly the nuance of that would not be easy to get the AI to correctly evaluate. Unless you just give it bonuses so it plays a different game, which on high difficulties would be the case. But I think that's what they do there anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they do that in every save because AI huge numbers of bonuses that allow it to do things the players can't get away with. Yeah, I, I personally would be very surprised to see a sequel to Beyond Earth, considering that the reception to the first game was very lukewarm at best. Um, but, you know, it, it could happen. They sold enough to make an expansion pack, though, so... Yeah, and I, I do wonder, though, if there were plans to make a second expansion that ended up getting shelved because the first expansion did not do well. I don't know how well um, Rising Tide did so I, I wonder if there was plans to do a second expansion because you know all the other civ games uh have tended to have two expansions and there was definitely a lot of potential for a second expansion I've, I've said in the past i think it should have been called falling skies and it should have focused on doing more aerial combat air units uh and um, more stuff going on in the upper atmosphere and maybe even in space with like the rest of the um the solar system so like more stuff in the satellite layer and maybe even like you know asteroid mining or somehow exploiting other you know planets and moons in the same star system that would have been brilliant uh i don't think i've ever heard you say that before actually uh, I've, I've written it several times in in my blog posts whenever i talk about uh uh beyond earth but yeah my my personal hope was the second expansion would be called falling skies because i thought that would be a real cool uh, uh inverse of the first expansion's title yeah it was so close yeah it was not to be i uh i don't think there was a planned second um expansion because civ 6 came out when it did um it would be very odd for them to have like pushed up the development of civ 6 that fast because beyond earth rising tide came out i want to say in like it was another one of those fairly early in the year releases. Was it 2015? No, it was, uh, I think it was 2016, actually. Let me look. Wasn't Civ nope, 6 it was, 2016? It was, it was October 2015. So yeah, it Civ came 6, out not, so 16. one year before Civ 6 came out. 
Yeah. Yeah, so there probably were not plans for a second expansion. Probably but not. There was, but like I said, there was plenty of room for one. Like I said, I, I think further developing all of the, you know, error units and, and doing more stuff with the satellite layer and, you know, like I said, maybe beyond would have been, you know, really, really cool. Make the victory conditions a little bit more engaging instead of it just being like, oh, you built the mind flower, now survive for 30 turns. Right. Oh, well. We can always dream. And who knows? Maybe they really are working on it. It's possible. But I think we can move on to our next related topic. Well, it's related insofar as it's on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe other than that, I don't know. But anyway, I rejoice those of you playing Civ on Xbox. A console side patch was issued that improved the launcher. No, I'm just kidding. You get less crashes, which is uh, actually beneficial to gameplay. So it should crash less frequently on Xbox. Oh, there's I... some questions about the PS4 crashing, but uh, not doesn't look like that's in this tweet. I realize why you said that because I forgot to put the forum link that was attached to that tweet. Basically, yeah. um, there was a forum thread that was posted when that came out, and it was asking, um, "Is it related to the way they figured out how many people got the um, number of?" Um, space rocket launches like maybe there was an uh a, oh. an, an unknown exploit on the uh, xbox that somehow caused them to have either extra difficulty or maybe too much access and they realized it when they went in and looked at how many people won the science victory i see so that was there was some history tie-in there yeah it's just not privy to it well that's interesting well it was a single post on sif Fanatics, so yeah take of that what you will but why would ne why would uh, Firaxis spend the effort to make a patch for Xbox patches? And uh oh, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just got a notification on my phone that my internet died. <laughs> uh oh. That's an interesting theory. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how that could possibly be. Anyway. Well, I, well, I guess we'll just uh, continue unless. Uh... Well, if if uh, the if I drop out. Just stop the show and wait for me to come back because okay. I'm I'm the one recording. So oh yes, that that would be unfortunate. I did just verify we are still live as of a few seconds ago. So yeah, okay, that is very strange. Anyway, uh, I was saying something and I forget what it was. Darn, it was along the lines of crashing last on console. Oh yeah, if if um like I've played the uh, Switch version. It's pretty crashy. I mean, it's not as crashy as I've heard that some of the other consoles are, but it has its problems. So if they're going to make a patch to fix Xbox, why wouldn't they fix the other consoles too? And why wouldn't they update the PC for to fix its crashes? I mean, unless the, there were there was an Xbox specific issue that was causing crashes. Oh, yeah, like a like an Xbox software update that requires games to be updated to match it. That's possible. Yeah. Because I know that a lot of times you'll see, oh, every game in my Steam library needs to be updated. Oh, it's like a five kilobit patch from Steamworks. Okay. Yeah. Which is nevertheless still scheduled <laughs> for some reason. Because that's the default for how Steam does things. Yeah. It's fine. I'd rather it be that way than... Yeah, I guess it's not hard to install a patch of that nature. Yeah. There you go. You won't get no crashes, just fewer. But you will get fewer. If you're on Xbox. In the thread for this topic, they were suggesting that the uh, patch may not have even happened yet, which I don't know how that could be. I don't know. I've never touched Civ on 
console. And we have one more news topic. Yes. So moving from the present and future of civilization games uh, to past civilization games, a user Blake00 has apparently started a petition on the Civ Fanatics forums. Well, a link to a petition on the Civ Fanatic forums uh, to ask good old games to add Civilization 1 and 2 uh, to its library of games because apparently they are not available digitally anywhere. So unless you have a disc for uh, Civ 1 and 2, you cannot play it. At current time, the easiest way to get a hold of Civ 1 and 2 is to buy Civilization Chronicles, which came out uh, between Civ 5 and Civ 6. And uh, that was the thing that I was talking about digging out of my closet a while back. And I subsequently did that, and it is now on my... So yes, Civ 1 and Civ 2 are in that bundle. Uh, all the DLCs, or all the DLCs, the expansion packs are included. Except, I think, Multiplayer Civ Edition. Is, is it Multiplayer Civ or Multiplayer Gold? Either way, they don't have the multiplayer enabled in that version because GameSpy is gone. So, oh yeah. But um, Blake Zero Zero is the guy who did the large um, scenario hunt for older games recently. If you remember that topic we did a while ago, he also was the one who did that video for Civ One that talked about all the mods. We covered it on the show. I don't remember if anyone remembers it. How long ago? I uh, checked the good old game site in question when I was doing research. And one of the things that they do is they have this big list of games and you basically just click on the ones you want them to bring and it adds a vote to it. Unfortunately, there are multiple different entries for some games. Um, so um, you're likely to find more than one place where Civ 1 and Civ 2 are mentioned and you'll find um, the individual expansion packs sometimes and sometimes all of them put together. So if you're diligent, go through the list and upvote every single place where it's listed. Also, there's a small piece of news that I'm adding here. Um, Polycast Season 1 will soon be available on the YouTube channel, which up heretofore it has not been. Uh, the audio quality is pretty bad, but remember, this was back in the time before podcasts were even a thing. So uh, think 2006-2007 era podcast, but uh, it will be on the website, on the um, YouTube channel soon. introduce the next topic wow so somebody on cfc let me open the the name abraxel braxiel i've heard that name before he is uh talking about flood barriers and coastal flooding in civilization 6 gathering storm he says i've been looking for at a strategy for rushing computers in the tech tree building flood barriers everywhere then burning as much coal as possible particularly <laughs> on maps with a lot of floodable terrain the results don't seem to be as effective as one would think. Even if the AI's territory is entirely flooded, they don't seem to take any uh, real damage from it. They continue to function. 
I would have expected it to fall apart, like every city revolting for lack of food or amenities, but they seem to hang on and even trade normally. Maybe there is a slow decline? Any thoughts? <laughs> this is a... This is a meme build, but it's funny, of course. Um, I'm guilty of using this this strategy, except I don't burn coal at the end. I usually use oil. Yeah, yeah. One of the, like the one of the first posters just says it's uh, hit to your yields mostly, but uh, most cities can tank that. Like they don't, they're not good cities anymore, but they don't like disband or like have their loyalty plummet to the point where they're gonna break free unless they're like right on the border with a lot of pressure. So the AI is just going to have less uh, effective production and science and such. But you probably don't really care about that. Like, if you can pull this strategy off, you probably could have just won. So, yeah, if you're able to get to computers before postal flooding takes place, you either are playing on too easy a difficulty or insert something not insulting here. Well, no, there's players who can certainly make the research that quickly, too. Like, uh, just blast through it. And like get super early space wins, even. Uh, but then they would do that rather than bothering to like flood, like wait and flood the world. Yeah. There's no reason. <laughs> or if think- you don't want to win space, you don't want to do the Chobo victory, uh, you can instead just conquer everything. I'm sure the AI is not going to hold up to any decent tactical control of units that are more advanced than it has. You can beat the AI with like contemporary or even dated units relative to it. So if you're like running around with a tech lead, I, I can't imagine it would be that hard to win. But, like, that's not the reason you're doing this in the first place, right? You want to basically watch the world do the opposite of burn, uh, but that's still not a good thing for the world, and have everyone else suffer while you don't. Watch the world And that's sink. funny. And, uh, but if, so from a roleplay perspective, it's, uh, it's amusing, but yeah, don't expect it to yeah, be too crushing. The other problem is uh, building flood uh, walls everywhere is uh, fairly expensive unless you have, I believe it's, the city-state of Valletta, which lets you buy things with faith in your town center. or ball. In which case, it becomes almost trivial. Yeah, but the problem with uh, doing this later in the game is if there's already started to be some flooding, you end up with a situation with, oh, it's getting really expensive because every time the next level of flood comes up, the barriers get more expensive. And, like, a lot more expensive. It's like mul- like they get multiplied or something. It's not just like, oh, they get... 15% more expensive or 25% more expensive. It's like, no, they get like 100% more expensive. Yeah, and uh, if you're building the walls specifically so you can flood the world, uh, doing that is counterproductive because that means you're just reducing your monetary intake by intentionally flooding the world. So uh, my advice is to not do this. Well, I mean, at that point in the game, like you're already close enough to the end where you know, losing money probably doesn't matter all that much. You're not doing this to improve your position. So if you're doing this at all, I'm not going to recommend against it because you're memeing. So enjoy it. But uh, yeah. Recognize that it's not it's not an optimal strategy. Yeah. Yeah. At a more fundamental level, this does kind of highlight one of the frustrations that I have with the way that Civ 6 does climate change, which is that like you can exacerbate it and let it run out of control and not do anything at all to address or mitigate it and like still finish and win the game. So, I mean, you can turn the earth into, you know, a flooded hellhole and like still win. And even like winning things like diplomatic victories and culture victories and still not just like kill everyone else domination victories, but like the types of victories that you would think would require, you know, being good stewards of the planet. 
I, I see no problem with this. If you're standing at the top of like a flaming husk versus like a, a golden world, you're still standing at the top. <laughs> yeah, but like there's there should uh, it's frustrating that there's like almost no acknowledgement at all within the game that like you have dramatically reduced the quality of life of like the, the people that you rule over. Uh, now, like, to be fair, you will have a lower score on average if you finish the game that way than if you finish the game other ways. Because you are guaranteed to be slower because you've actually left the game long enough for a global warming to take the world into hellhole status. Um, but also, like, if everything is gutted like that, you're going to have less pop and such. So, like, you'll be weaker across metrics. So you'll get a better score if the world is in a good condition when you win. Yeah, true. But a win is still a win. And like, well, sure. Know, but yeah, you've, you've, you're being acknowledged by having a lower score if you. I, I, I suppose. But as we've said <laughs> so many times on this podcast, like the Civ, the score in a Civ game is really, really does not matter at all. Oh, well, victory know, conditions themselves are arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, when you compare it to something like, uh, you know, comparing it to humankind, where like the score is, you know, like everything. It's the victory condition, which is the main problem with humankind. Well, you could uh, actually track score to uh, performance better, and then it wouldn't be as much of a problem. But the score doesn't represent the best way to play is the problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could make a case that the best way to play is the one that optimizes your score. But there are some really broken incentives. For, like, I haven't played the games. This is just like what I've heard. The, the, there's like broken incentive slash break points like you can win while not existing if you had enough score farmed up but if you get slaughtered fast enough that's not possible because you won't have accrued enough score right. yeah well the the idea i think is to make it so that like your like really good performance early in the game and in the middle of the game like counts for more than just setting you up for later in the game so like i, I think they're you know they're uh they're thinking of it kind of like the way we think of, say, for example, the Roman Empire as, you know, being a very, very successful, uh, you know, historical state that like everybody for thousand for a thousand years wanted to emulate, uh, even though they did actually, you know, go into decline and fall. Uh, so, you know, in humankind, arguably, you can win as the Roman Empire and still fall in the Middle Ages, but still have been the best civilization that had ever existed even though you're not the best civilization still in the game when the game ends. Yeah. And there's, there's merit to that. Like we can, you know, we can argue back and forth about whether that makes for a, a good historic, you know, strategy game or not. But like I said, there's a, there's a justification for it and it well, makes yeah, sense. And I'd have trouble arguing too much having not played it. So I, I haven't experienced the trade-offs or exactly how that's tuned directly. Yeah, I mean, I've played but I, like it I said, I don't think it's necessarily a problem that score is your driving uh, victory condition. It just it depends what is contributing to score because you could have like a well balanced score system, or you could have the opposite, like uh, war participation in our survival. I mean, the, the scoring the scoring system in humankind. Uh, you know, for those listeners who don't know and haven't played the game yet, I would compare it to be kind of a combination of the way that civilization games typically handle score. And also if uh, historic moments that you would get in Civ Six uh, that are on the timeline, things that you get era score for, if those counted for points in your score, 
it, it's kind of like a mashup of the two. So there's you get score for you know just having cities and population and controlling territory and like winning battles and stuff like that and having wonders and things like that. But then you also get score for accomplishing certain tasks in game. Uh, you know, like being the first to to do something in particular to reach some milestone or threshold. Uh, and um and things like that and and that might include like i forget oh it's been a while since i played humankind so i forget some of the specifics but i think there are things like circumnavigating the world is something that gives you like exploration points uh which you know then gets rolled into your score does the game end when somebody scarlet is insurmountable no basically what happens is if i remember and it again it's been a while since i've played so i don't know if they've changed or updated things but uh uh, what happens is when a civilization gets into the modern era, that basically triggers the end game. And there's like so many turns uh, before, you know, the game ends and whoever has the highest score at that point, which may or may not be the, the player who triggered the end game. Uh, the game would end and, and then whoever has the most score wins. So kind of like, yes, it accelerates the end of the game because the it's not just playing for X number of turns and always playing through X number of turns. It's it's playing until someone reaches the modern era. And once that happens, that basically begins the countdown towards the end of the game. Okay, but like if someone has so much score that there are no longer any possible actions that could make up the difference, they, they should just end the game. Yeah, that does not immediately end the game. But if you're so far ahead of everyone else that you are triggering, you know, that you're entering the modern era when everyone else is in like, you know, like medieval or uh, renaissance era levels of, of tech and development, then yes, you do end the game faster. And they're yeah, not going to I just think any... it's a missed opportunity like that to address one of Civ's and other turn-based strategies' major issues, which is having a game that's effectively won, but you can't end it without just smashing and turn a bunch. Like, that is a perfect opportunity to be like, look, th this player can no longer be caught, like, mathematically can no longer be caught. It's over. Like, period. There, there is no longer any action that can be taken in the game. Not even, like, a, like a supercomputer taking over for the next best opponent could any longer make up the score differential. At that point, the game is literally over. Just end the game. Yeah, I suppose, hypothetically, it, it could be possible in that game to have mo a, a lead that is so large that no other... Uh, culture in the game could possibly score enough points to catch up to you that might be possible um but like I, oh, the thing is that that there's, there's always like the possibility of for example every other you know culture in the game ganging up on you and declaring war on you and, and taking all your cities and destroying your army and all that stuff and you know potentially eliminating you from the game yeah, so but from what i understand if your score is large enough you would still in uh i think uh, even I, if you I don't get know, removed maybe, I, I would have to like look it up. I was under the impression that you did still have to like be in the game in order to qualify for winning. Oh, uh, well, in that case, end, but... if that's true, then you would just kill anybody who has more score than you in the modern era or near it. Yeah, you, you, well, you would want to try. But one of the things that prevented that from happening when the game first came out was their weird uh, like war score mechanic that would force like white peace under certain conditions and like there was no way you could i had one game where i tried to declare war on another culture in order to uh prevent them from winning a science victory or whatever well not, not winning a science victory specifically but you know doing the the things that would give them enough points you know to win um yeah. and uh like the the turn that i declared war on them the game forced me to end the war with a white peace because somehow 
their their war score was such that I had already lost. And I had no idea how or why. Supposedly that was fixed in a patch at some point, because this was like within a month or two of the game coming out that this happened. And, you know, they they patched the war score mechanics several times since then. So hopefully that okay. sort of thing isn't happening anymore. But that was also a big problem when the first game came out, because I know a lot of people were complaining about issues like that, where even if they even though they wanted to, you know, go and conquer this other runaway sieve or runaway culture that was winning the game, like the war score mechanic simply would not let them. Yikes. Well, yeah, that, that sounds like it wasn't intended. Normally war score at least is somewhat representative of what happens in the war. Yeah, normally you would think, you would think so, but <laughs> I don't know what was going Like I said, I couldn't figure it out. I was like staring at the, the, the points and stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't understand yeah, why. Yeah, I think I think it was it was a bug, and at some point they they fixed it, and they made other changes to the war score systems, and uh, made changes to the way to the things that you can demand as compensation, you know, after winning a war, because the losing culture has to pay like reparations or whatever to the winning culture uh, and stuff like that, and they've adjusted a bunch because people were frustrated with that because like there was like one thing you could ask for and that would be it, but they changed that to make that more flexible as well. So I, know, I haven't played it in a while, so I don't know what the current state of humankind is. But uh, one other subtle thing that I do like about the way that humankind uh, uses score to determine winner, and I'm sorry to have gone off on this big you know, tangent or whatever, uh, but uh, something that I really like about it is that it's not just a winner-take-all system. Like, there is acknowledgement of uh, second place and third place and other runners-up. In fact, the victory screen for humankind shows the top three players, not just the winner. Interesting. So I like that even if you're going to lose a game, you can still compete for a second or third place spot and the victory screen will still acknowledge that. And I like that because it means that like you can still, you know, you can still keep playing even if you're not going to be the one and only winning civilization. That's something that you just don't do in Civ. You know, another Civ launches their rocket and it's just game over. You lose. Your entire civilization crumbles to dust, even if you were two turns away from doing it yourself. You're reminding me how much I like the Civ 4. Uh, system for interrupting a space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once they launch the rocket, you have however many turns until it reaches Alpha Centauri to capture their capital. And if you succeed, it will uh, it will destroy their rocket and they'll have to build it again. <laughs> now, it's not easy because the AI usually launches the rocket with like all the text, so you'll have to fight your way through all the modern uh, equipment that the game allows the AI to produce in probably huge numbers. But it's possible, and I've interrupted victory conditions that way before. Well, this is just the nuke paradrop system. Well, you could do that, but you know, even if you're lagging behind, uh, you can fight your way to it. Uh, sometimes the nuke paradrop isn't practical because the AI will build SDI, and uh, then like a significant percentage of your nukes won't hit, uh, even if you're firing tactical nukes, ICBMs. You can forget it; it's so unlikely, it's just, and those cost so much to build. Uh, so it's not always easy to make a whole bunch of subs, put a whole bunch of tech nukes on sufficient to the task and nuke the city enough and then have be in parajop range. Like this, this stuff isn't free to manage, but sometimes the AI just has a coastal city and you can like blow it up with battleships or whatever and then make a run into it. Yeah, it just depends, but you don't want to be too far behind uh, generally. Usually by that point, somebody's already won a culture victory. Well, uh, often the case you've uh, acted to interrupt that first. Because the AI will shut off its science slider while doing culture in most cases. Well, it has like two culture scripts. And the one where it goes like religious based culture, it stops like at or before rifles. 
and the other one they go out to uh, mass media first and uh, that one tends to have a bit better defenses but culture eyes in general tend to suck at defending so you can just take one of their cities or if you take their capital it breaks the eye script and they go for something else they stop pursuing that culture victory oh uh one one minor correction that i want to make uh for humankind's endgame uh it's not entering the modern era that um, triggers the end game. It's completing all of the the um, era star requirements for it. So basically, you have to finish the contemporary area uh, era, and that triggers the end game. Okay, that makes more sense. Well, just conquer whoever's winning, and hopefully the war score thing <laughs> actually lets you fight wars. <laughs> yeah. But it probably does now. Okay, for the next topic, uh, Basil II. This is a little bit of an older thread, but Basil II had a lot of people who were like, oh, he's like super awesome. Haha, ha, yay. Let's go kill some Bulgars. And then apparently he is now very unpopular. And we'd like to know, and there's a thread here started by Alex Vance. Uh, who moonlights on Civ forums when she's not busy saving the world with Freeman. Uh, she says, Remember all those YouTube videos when Basil II was spoilered? How insane fun he would be? How easy it would be to win with him, etc.? Uh, why did the average player consider Basil to be low to mid-tier? Many naysayers focus on Basil II's only arguably weak point, the extreme early game. The first, uh, But a good Basil II player will be taking entire empires with warriors and archers by the classical era. By the time walls are relevant, your tagma is are pulling triple duty as knights, aurabots, and siege weapons. I'm not sure what an aurabot is. Does anybody know what that is? Uh, it's, I think when they kill enemy units, they spread uh, religion to nearby cities. Oh yeah, he's Byzantium, isn't he? So yeah, probably. Yeah. You rarely face issues with amenities because of how effective the Hippodrome is at providing them, not to mention free tanks slash knights with each Hippodrome plus each upgrade to the Hippodrome, which means that the ability to expand faster without overexpanding, and combining that with the option of winning via religion means you can viably keep five allies to boost your trade routes and not have to backstab them in the end. Yeah, so uh, the, the basic strategy for Basil in Civ 6 is he has like a feedback loop, positive feedback loop thing going on where you spread your religion by winning combats and then converting uh, other cities, uh, well, specifically, I think capitals, uh, then gives all of your units a combat bonus. So you've got that positive feedback loop of, of spread religion by winning battles and then winning battles because you spread your religion, which is insanely powerful. But the issue with Basil is that all of that is completely contingent on you having had founded your own religion at the beginning of the game. Because if you don't found your own religion, you lose all of those bonuses for the entire game. Because uh, even just having a religion doesn't apply to getting those bonuses. And even capturing other players' holy cities does not, and converting to their religion does not count as you having founded the religion. So... I think it's for a lot of players. It's it's one of they're one of those sieves where uh, they're very hit or miss. Either you get that religion and then build a military and steamroll, or you don't get the religion and like you basically are playing a sieve with no 
unique bonuses at all, pretty much, except for your uh, your district that gives you like free cavalry units. And the Droman, insofar as you care about that. But it will matter on some map. The, now, the, the Droman is, is pretty good in certain conditions because the, the Droman, by winning battles, does... Uh, does you know spread your faith because um, all of your military units do that, and it's a ranged unit instead of the melee, the typical melee unit that you would get at that time, the galley or whatever. So yeah. you can you if you can get it behind the lines along their coast and start like using those ranged attacks to take out their units that are like guarding cities and districts and whatever, and convert their capital uh, before you move in your land army. Like you get a large military bonus for your land invasion, which can, you know, potentially uh, turn the tide of the war. And if you can sink all if they've got even if they have galleys, right, because your units are ranged and theirs are not, uh, you have an advantage in the naval warfare. So if, if, if they have a large fleet and you sink it, that's a lot of faith that you're spreading and probably spreading into like their inner core cities and, you know, converting them more quickly. I was just thinking about using it on like more island-based maps early to just blow someone up. Oh yeah, and that works too. It's always fun to do that. I yeah, wish I don't. I do think that they should benefit from their current religion, like whatever that is, as long as they have like the holy site of that religion and have converted to it. That way, you're not completely hosed on just losing a religion race early on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would be potentially an uphill battle because you would have to conquer that holy city without any of your your combat bonuses. But yeah, yeah once once you have it, I agree. I, I do think that it should, and and that's even fitting for like you know the Byzantine Empire because it's got like a like a crusade kind of theme going to it. You know, recapturing the Holy Land kind of thing. Well, plus, like they didn't found the religion that they followed, <laughs> not right. really. But they did own the holy site. <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I mean, I guess that kind of depends on, on uh, you know, what you consider, how you consider founding a schism religion to be. But yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. But I mean. Because the Civ 6 <laughs> does have Eastern Orthodoxy as a separate religion than Catholicism. So that's true. I, technically, that is the religion that the Byzantine Empire founded. I guess. But the the um, Holy City is still the same. Right. The other thing is, like, uh, like was mentioned in the thread their very early game is not that impressive. And to be fair, that is the most important spot in any of the Civ games, including six. Like, for example, uh, friggin' Roosevelt or whatever, or uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah, America has has plus four just out of the gate, like on their home continent. So like they already have a stronger bonus than this without bothering with religion at all and can just go shank somebody immediately. And they're not considered a particularly strong uh, Civ overall. Yeah, unless America like gets the misfortune of like starting their, you know, capital city being like right on the border, you know, between yeah. like two because you know Civ Six is unique in the civilization games in that continents aren't land masses. A single landmass can be multiple continents. So it's hypothetically possible for America to start on like the border between two continents and then all their enemies just happen to be on the other quote continent. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that can happen. You don't get any bonuses, so I don't think that's too common, though. And of course, you can still farm them in your territory to kill their units and then walk over. So you're not like you still get some benefit, but yeah, I would say I'd probably prefer the Byzantine benefit at that point. Yeah. Although, again, I emphasize you don't have to found a religion, you don't have to deviate your tech, you don't have to invest in anything off the path of just beating someone down militarily. Yeah, I and mean, they are nowhere near the strongest early game civ for knocking heads nowhere near yeah so like, like 
you're Basil starting to has a nice snowball but again like if you are successfully conquering one or two other nations early uh other people also have a positive feedback loop you're just stronger you have more cities you have more research you have more productive capacity to put units up front without sacrificing uh improving your economy there's uh like everybody benefits from growing larger through conquest period it's just basil benefits more quickly and more soundly because his units get better along with everything else due to the religion mechanic uh but right yeah i mean everyone gets better and when you're playing against ai in particular uh you don't need to snowball that hard because once you start snowballing, you're in great shape already. Yeah, and I think you know, he's the, fine. The first, like, I don't think he's top or bottom tier or anything. Right, and well, that's the whole point of the threat is what, during the previews, everyone thought he was going to be like super top S tier, and then it's like, okay, I don't know, maybe he's like a B or a B plus or something like that. But yeah, the the big issue with Basil is. You, compared to other religious-oriented civs, like he doesn't start with very many advantages towards founding a religion. So especially yeah. on the higher difficulties, and especially if you are playing against other, like for example, Russia, uh, or any civ that has a unique holy site district replacement, it's half the cost. So you get it twice as fast, you know, in the game, and then are are you know creating um, uh, great profit points that much earlier and founding the religion that much earlier. And I think the only advantage that Basil get is he gets like one extra great profit point per turn once he has his holy site up and running, but yeah. you have to build that holy site and you have to pay full cost for it and you have to research the tech. So, you know, on, on higher difficulties, it's like, okay, did you find a natural wonder to get the inspiration for it? So the tech is half the cost. No. Okay. Well, now it's going to take even longer. You don't have the the unique holy site district, so it's going to take twice as long as another you know religious sieve. And then you actually have to wait for the the profit to actually pop. And uh, you know if all the other sieves beat you to it, you know, or if if like um, Arabia's in the game and they just are given the last profit for free, uh, yeah, Byzantium is just hosed. Other, you know, they're just, like I said, just playing a stock sieve at that point. Now, you do still have the Hippodromes, which give you, you know, some nice amenity bonuses and also free cavalry units, heavy cavalry units. Uh, and you can still steamroll the other players with heavy cavalry, once, especially once they turn into, like, knights and tanks. Uh, you're probably not going to do that much steamrolling with just heavy chariots. But, you know, knights and tanks are powerful units. And if I remember correctly, they're considered free units, which means they have no resource maintenance cost. So, I mean, that's that's still a pretty powerful buff, even without the religious combat strength bonuses. It's worth pointing out that if you do flip cities, you can actually use your cavalry to attack cities. Uh, they're not gutted like most cavalry was in terms of doing that for Basil. Right. So by no stretch of the imagination is Basil, like, weak. Even if you don't get the religion, you can still be competitive militarily. Yeah, he's just... Yeah, he's, he's in the pool of mostly average rulers. Are we ready for the Senate or do we want to cut it short? Ooh, talking about policy cars, huh? Yeah. Well, we can talk about it. How long do you think this conversation will be? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing where we could talk about it for like five minutes or we could just like drone on for 20. <laughs> so you can save it for another episode too if you want let's talk about the next topic instead okay uh who introduces that one? Oh, is that the door monster video yeah guess yeah. who's back guys <laughs> won't be hard to guess now
<laughs> yeah, it's been a while. I don't think they did. They do any Civilization Six videos? Is this the first one? The last one they did was in 2019. Yeah, it's been a while. But was it a Civ Six video or was it still a Civ Five video? It was a Civ Five Civ Six video. Yeah, okay. they've had yeah. Civ Six videos because I remember well, they had an, another one using workers early. Yeah, or builders. Well, uh, the YouTube channel Door Monster is back after a very lengthy hiatus with another entertaining short YouTube clip. It's like, I think, less than two minutes long uh, about uh, builders and barbarians and I the... I push him off the cliff. Uh, Whoops. Roll. What? It started playing when I opened up the thing. That was not good. Oh, yeah. Uh, and about the role that builders may or may not be obligated to play in repairing improvements during active barbarian attacks uh yeah like when the barbarians come uh you should probably send all of your civilian units into your cities uh just in case and uh just let them pillage until you can defeat them i i don't know why any civ six player would be sending their builders out uh i, I think what they're doing is they're probably making a mockery of the ai because that's something that the ai possibly does yeah the ai still not the greatest uh, but anyway, yeah, the um, the video is a builder making an impassioned speech about how it is their duty and responsibility to repair this pillaged uh, tobacco plantation, even though the barbarians are right there waiting to pillage it again. And nobody seems to care whether they have pillaged uh, uh, resources or not. And, and in fact, as a kind of underhanded jab at the obtuseness of some of Civilization VI's mechanics... Uh, they even talk about how they have no idea what the tobacco even actually does. Yeah. <laughs> or, or why the Empire wants or needs it, which uh, was actually my personal... I, I found that to be the most amusing part of the, the video is, oh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of very poorly explained mechanics in uh, Civ Six, and amenity is one of them. It's not the worst. The worst is probably culture, victory, and tourism. Oh, yeah. I uh, still don't understand how tourism compare compares to victory to culture and how they relate to each other. It's weird. And I, I've, I've read forums that go over like the math behind it and watched multiple videos. You know, I know Potato McWhiskey, I think, had a good one of a while back. But even after watching that, I'm still like, I don't know. All I know is build more tourism good. I think that's all that matters at this point. <laughs> I remember when uh, Culture Victory in Civ Five was like, build this wonder, was it? You used to, fi you'd finish five trees and then you'd uh, build a wonder, I think. Did you even have to build a wonder? Was, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was rolling tourism against culture. Well, that was in Brave New World, but Vanilla Civ Five, you just had to f complete five oh. of the social policy trees. And then, yeah, there may have been like a wonder or a city project that you had to do after that to actually cement the victory. Yeah, I don't remember how it was originally. It was yeah. weird. Well, it was, it, it was really unsatisfying because it was a super passive mechanic where... Like you're you're just get accumulating these social policies as you play the game anyway, and then at some point you just trip over a pretty much arbitrary threshold where it's like, oh, would you like to win the game now? And it's like, okay, sure. It would be like if if completing the tech tree just won the game for you, and you didn't have to do anything else after that. <laughs> that would be nice, but no. Well, the way the victory condition works, well, I, I don't know, maybe not. Now they've added so much more to it, but hypothetically, you could win the science victory without having completed the tech tree. Yeah. And I think there's a few leaf techs that you don't need to build all the spaceship parts. But if you're that far ahead, you're probably researching all those techs in two or three turns anyway. So the time it would take you to build the spaceship parts 
you would just tech all of those techs anyway. Yeah, it was also common to win without all the techs and so forth. I remember that uh, a space that is. Oh, did we? Uh, I remember that when uh, Gods and Kings came out, it was a big deal how all of a sudden you needed all the techs to get to Science Victory, except for the internet, basically. <laughs> In Civ uh, Four, I. You you could get pretty far without computers. I think you eventually needed them, but <laughs> oh, and uh, it was generally considered objectively bad to get the space elevator so far because it cost too much. Yeah, and you had to deviate in tech to get to it. Oh yeah, uh, that like would it was do not it. Every it was not a required technology for the spaceship itself. And if you had decently productive cities, you could instead just queue up the space parts sooner and come out far ahead or at least like a few turns ahead of building the space elevator like it was hard you could like you would have to really engineer like almost insane hypothetical situations to justify uh, deviating your tech and starting like your spaceship engine slower just to put in the space elevator in the queue such or you just let someone else build the space elevator and then you conquer them or permanent ally with them yeah well good luck with that because <laughs> the ai doesn't build it quickly either and if you're letting someone else build that, then uh, you, you're going to be at risk of losing the space race. And then you might have to go over there and clap them, in which case, why are you bothering with space anymore? <laughs> well, I think you're going to go over and clap them anyway because they have the space elevator. Yeah, but like with all the investment you took to do that, you could have just like built the ship and launched it in one. <laughs> in Civ 4, was it considered good practice to build all of the parts or just go with minimum? Um, it depended. Uh, so you would like take, you would go through most of the techs, and then your last one. It depended on your productive capacity, how much, how quickly you could finish multiples of the engine, for example. So you might launch it with a twelve turn versus a ten turn. Well, and there's also, no point in like if if your productions are going to finish more than uh, one turn apart, then there's no point in building two because you won't save any time waiting to launch a ten turn ship versus just launching a twelve turn ship. A couple turns earlier. Yeah, and if the other civilizations do not pose a military threat to you, and they're far enough behind on the tech tree that they're not going to out tech you to build the other parts, uh, like it kind of doesn't matter because they're not going to capture your capital, and they're not going to launch a more advanced, faster spacecraft before yours reaches the destination. Um, but you, you would, would usually build all the thrusters because you would have the tech fast enough. Yeah, I'll, but that, of course, would require making a judgment call on the uh, the player's part because you might not necessarily know for sure uh, whether any of those conditions are true. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I, I found it rare to launch anything but a 10 or 12 turn ship. Maybe I was not optimizing that, though. I didn't go for space too often. I did it sometimes. I want to say when I played Civ Six, I never played to victory most of the time. On it's... Civ Six, I just <laughs> knock heads. <laughs> it's been a while. You just kill everything in Civ 6. I don't think I've played Civ 4 since Civ 5 came out. The collateral initiative in Civ 4 made like dealing with contemporary or more advanced AI somewhat difficult militarily. You could still do it if you had enough production and you could bait its army and you initiate collateral against it instead. But it's actually dangerous to move into AI territory in Civ 4 at parity. Especially on high difficulties, that's true. Whereas like in Civ 6, I found that I could win with tech lead, tech parity, or even like an error behind, as long as I have the great general, a few policy cards to have good movement, and my stuff is even like a little bit experienced, you just kill the stuff anyway. 
is you get like a ton of modifiers between the general and uh, you know adjacency slash surrounding type bonuses and uh, experience upgrades on your units or whatever. You more than overcome the strength differential from a tech gap, which just wasn't a thing in Civ Four. Like you could put all the promotions on a mace; it wasn't going to be a rifle. Yeah, I always kind of felt like Civ Four was um, a more was more thoughtful in the uh, end game than either Civ Five or Civ Six, where Civ Five and Civ Six just add more micromanagement to the end game to provide an illusion of having you know valuable decisions to make. But it's I don't Civ know if I would go that far. Yeah, I mean, it's a broad generalization. I, I feel like Civ Four, you had to think a, a lot more carefully about, you know, moving against, you know, another um, Civ late in the game. Uh, whereas in, in Civ Five and Civ Six, I feel like I, I don't have to think as hard about it. I just have to execute it. You know what I mean? That well, I just think the mechanics are different enough that the AI struggles in Five and Six. And that's a big part of it, too, especially in six, where the AI tends to stop building units after a certain period of the game. And if they lose those units in the meantime, have nothing to fight back with. Yeah, well, that that's what makes it so easy to roll over stuff in yeah. the late game. Yeah. You know how we were talking about these bugs that you were fixing in the Xbox that were causing crashes? Could you like make the game fun, too? <laughs> a lot of people enjoy the game. I enjoy the game mostly when I'm feeling mentally up to it, but I don't like how it's just a raffle stomp when you're fighting an AI for the second time. It's like, oh, you, you didn't bother to build any more units, huh? Why are you fighting it a second time? Just conquer it the first time. Sometimes I just run out of steam and I'm just like, okay, I've taken half their empire and all my units are very damaged and... It would take me a few turns to wait to heal them up anyway, so might as well just make a temporary piece. And I know they're not going to build any more units, so why bother? Or it could be that they're they're just willing to offer so much for peace, especially if it's all lump sum stuff, like you know, like a thousands of gold or whatever, and maybe a city or two. It's like okay, fine, I'll just take this, cash it in, and wait ten turns, and then send my army right back in to take the rest. I remember yeah, okay. the the Civ Five era AI rage quits, where you'd have a a Civ that you'd take like two cities, and they'd offer all twenty five of their other cities for <laughs> peace. They're just trying to undermine you with the city scaling penalty. Well, yeah, in Civ Five, that would be a really bad thing to do. Puppet them all. But I forget. Would you be allowed to raise those cities if they were given to you in a peace deal, or can you only do that if you conquer it with your military? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I suspect you probably could raise them. Puppet them all. But if you I mean, but nice even sprawling empire that does nothing. Even puppets require uh happiness though. Yeah, that's true. You just have to accept that you'll never have a golden age ever again. Oh, it was worse than that in Survive if you did something like that. Like if you took twenty some cities, like unless you're like in the light game where you could somewhat manage. Like, oh, I, I hope you enjoy that minus thirty three percent combat penalty. On all units. Yeah, I forgot how punitive it was. Yeah, it was uh, pretty rough. The tech penalties for it were awful, too. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, Did I, you just I remember? I definitely liked how in Civ Four, uh, you got to choose how the you know extra maintenance and corruption or whatever uh, affected your Civ. You could toggle that uh, gold to science slider. And Was there also a culture slider? There was. You and, had to unlock uh, it. There was. There's also espionage. Wasn't there That's also right, yeah. a luxury slider? That was culture. 
Oh, I thought luxuries and culture were two different things. Well, they are, but culture affects your happiness. There's no slider for like luxury resources. Oh, so what you're saying is the cultural advisor was Elvis. There was no culture advisor before. Oh, I thought but we you were talking about Sid too. Yeah, no, we were talking about four. Crap. I got derailed on my own brain, apparently. Yeah, the, the culture slider in Civ 4, the way that works is that you get like some happiness just for increasing it, and then you, the amount you get increases in cities that have theaters and coliseums. So you could like build a theater and a coliseum uh, and then like run your slider at 20% and get a fair amount of happiness out of that in any city that made those investments. But that's a significant investment, and throwing 20% of your commerce into that was a non-trivial cost to pay, but you could offset a lot of unhappiness that way temporarily. Conquering armies are known for their tendency to build theaters in their wake. <laughs> I guess, although you had some other options too. Cast system being the one I remember. Also, maintenance was uh, pretty complex because that was like a distance to palace-based calculation. There's also like uh, another one, another maintenance hit for being on a different continent than your home capital, uh, but uh, that maintenance is capped at double your a distance to palace and the communist thing, uh, state property that uh, made it so that you didn't have a distance to palace penalty or maintenance only scaled up based on the number of cities. So with communism, it was actually good to have cities on other continents. Yes, somehow. That makes a lot of um um yeah how how I, I I'm struggling to put communism and good sense in the same sentence. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Games, uh, well, I mean, games favor command economies generally in a way that just doesn't function outside of games because ga- the models of games are simpler realities than actual reality. So in a sense, you could justify it. <laughs> well, yeah, games games are command economies because you want to give the player control over what their civ is doing. But yeah. in the real world, there's not enough computing power on the planet to simulate and properly handle all of that information and present it in a way that's logical and understandable in amount of in an amount of time that's possible to affect. Like and then, like also, you have game options, and you want there to be some incentive to pick game options. And if you didn't make it good, why would anybody ever switch into state property? Well, they wouldn't. But then, why include it in the game? It would be. But yeah, like, yeah. So <laughs> they just they're like, okay, well, we're going to represent this, and we're just going to give it a mechanic so that. It, People have some incentive to pick this sometimes. It kind of links back to what I was talking about earlier with the climate change, where, you know, the game doesn't care about the quality of life that you're providing, you know, to your citizens all that much. Just that, you know, you uh, are controlling territory. Quality of life. We have an empire to run here. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's there. These are basically just two heads coming from the same problem. I, I don't like, see uh, it's a problem. Well, OK, <laughs> S- same same issue, I guess, maybe. Maybe not problem, but whatever. <laughs> the game favors climate change and the game favors uh, uh, repressive governments because they give more agency to the player uh, at the expense of the supposed quality of life of the little simulated people, which may or may not be living in these little simulated cities. They're all just a number. Ex- well, exactly. And they're not even just a number. Just a statistic. There. And it's a super abstract number because a population point in a city is like, I mean, it's not even measured in like a, a linear growth. It's like an exponential growth. Like early in the game, each po- point of population in a city probably represents what, hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I think um, there is a exact correlation in Civ 4. I don't think in Civ 5 or Civ 6, though. 
Maybe Civ yeah, 5. I, I Civ 5 had a demographic screen. It does, yeah. Civ 6 doesn't. Man, those demographic screens were so abusive if you, like, gamed them. Oh, I see you've gained another population point. Like, you could look at the demographics on the first turn and know if, like, Mali was in the game. Uh, you could see rushes coming by looking at the score graphs, or like, the uh, military score. You'd see if someone's building up for a rush. You don't know who necessarily, but you might by inferring other things in there. But, like, if you checked it every turn and you had enough stuff memorized, you could be like, oh, someone produced an axe man this turn. Yeah, they, <laughs> without, they, without scouting them. They probably <laughs> should have, like, hidden that stuff behind, like, the retire screen until you get to the point in the game where you have like actual relations and maybe some espionage with those other civilizations kind of like the way that civ 6 has like the passive espionage things with your allies oh maybe, espionage maybe the, did a lot more than that maybe the demographics espionage on someone in civ 4 you got to see their cities no, so you no, can physically I mean, I observe the units in them without I, being there I'm, I'm what i'm saying is i'm wondering if if it would be uh if it would be interesting for the demographics panel to have hidden information in it until you actually like meet requirements in game to reveal those uh, those pieces of information. Unless you yeah. just retire and then that's you know it, the game's over. That's all public information. You can see it on the you know the retire screen just with all the graphs and, and stuff. I'd be fine with that, but I mean realistically, you don't need it too much either. I have a quick. Like, it's question. not a thing that has to be in the game because like you you like a lot of it just is scouting. So like once you've scouted somebody. The demographics are, are just another less immediately useful representation of that same information you've already learned by just looking at their nation. I have a quick question real quick. Okay. How did we get from Dormonster talking about barbarians and warriors to espionage? <laughs> That's a good question. We'll have <laughs> the to... same way we do this on every episode. Like, oh, we're talking about one thing. And then it immediately transitions into a whole bunch of other things that are related. Uh, and, there's uh, a progression. Or, or not at all related in some cases. There, there's, there's a progression. Just now, give us a little bit of time and we'll take you into the weeds. That's just how it is. Anyway, Hopefully that's something that our listeners enjoy. I, I, I guess we still get listeners after 406 episodes. <laughs> it probably makes titling the topics a little questionable. But other than that. Uh, well, <laughs> you don't title the topics so much. Um, you just call it what the link is, and then yeah. um, anything that comes out of that is fair game. I, I know right. when I was when I was um, writing the stuff for the website, uh, if we did go on like a crazy t like tangent that was like became a totally different topic, I would at least try to acknowledge that in the uh, in the description. But yeah, it was it was tough sometimes because it would require like listening to the entire episode again. <laughs> you think I do that when I edit? No way. Yeah, it depends on how much time you have available or how quickly after the recording you do it and how much of it is still fresh in, in your memory. I mean, I still have to do... I still, after this, I'll have to edit six episodes to be caught up. But hey, they're actually coming out now, so that's good. Are you still planning on a one or two per week timeline? Uh, Monday and Friday until uh, they are all out. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll release this one next Saturday just to... No, because then they'll be out of order and that'll confuse people. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is completely irrelevant to people who will be listening in the future, so I'll skip it for later. This has been uh, Polycast episode 406. I'm... Canis Albinus, I'm here, finally back in working condition, mostly. And I'm joined with the me and team. 
You can leave your workers outside your city. I'll protect them for you. And Mega Bears fan. Woohoo! It's football season again. Our long national nightmare is over. It's a lot better than Watergate. Is that the exact quote that happens in every Madden game in preseason? It is, yes. The first preseason game in Madden, they, they call it the six-month national nightmare or something like that, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you knew that. <laughs> well, uh, there are quite a few people who... Well, I, I used to watch somebody who you would stream Madden every time the new Madden came out. They would do like a, a four-season emulated uh, season type thing where they would play as the Jets, so you can imagine how well that went. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They um, they always complain about that line uh, because he's like, oh, well, they, they have the strangest narrative lines. They're always talking about how it's always better than Watergate. And uh, people had to remind him that the reason it does that is because it's a fairly famous quote from a football person. I don't think I've ever heard the Watergate line. Uh, but yeah, the every... The opening kickoff of every of the first uh, preseason game in every uh, every season in Madden, they talk about the long national nightmare finally being over. But yeah, I don't I don't remember any commentary in the game ever referencing Watergate. Well, because the long national nightmare was the Watergate trial stuff. Oh, originally. Okay, yeah. That that's where that reference comes from, and uh, that's why they say, well, it's a lot better than Watergate because that's where it's related. Anyway, gotcha. we're supposed to be wrapping up a podcast here. And thank you for listening to the last two minutes of Maddencast. <laughs> okay. They're used to it by now. I mean, yeah, your name are. is Mega Bears fan. What do they expect? Yeah, it's, it's right there in the name, in the logo. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure teams are not looking too good for this upcoming season. Should be fine, but I, I don't think we have Super Bowl contenders here. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the polycast at thepolycast.net.